This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Next to school closures and student vaccinations, critical race theory is the dominant education topic of the day. The New York Times is peddling a journalistic document entitled The 1619 Project, which is urging schools to include as part of their curriculum. Parents don't like the idea, and states are passing laws expected to guide the way in which African-American history is to be taught. Daily news stories are covering rapidly changing developments. But is the media giving the public a correct account of the theory's tenets? Is the media accurately reporting what parents are saying and states are doing? To explore this topic, I have with me today Frederick Hess of the American Enterprise Institute. He has released a report just this past week or so, which suggests that media coverage of the controversy is highly selective, uninformative, and misleading. So thank you, Rick, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Hey, pleasure to be here, Paul. So, Rick, let me begin at the beginning. I agree with you that critical race theory isn't well described in the media. So I don't want to be criticized for falling into that pit hole or whatever. What is critical race theory? You know, it's a way of thinking about literature and history and the rest. But instead of me describing it and then getting um, attacked for having mischaracterized it, Let's go ahead and just quote uh, from the book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefancic, uh, two founders of the critical race theory movement, who write, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. Put simply, critical race theory is an attempt to question and even attack all of the fundamental pillars of the American polity. Well, of course, you know, a lot of these ideas developed during the Enlightenment. It's sort of out of the Renaissance, out of the Enlightenment, uh, we got a, a, a new way of thinking about uh, society. And uh, science became the mechanism by which we learn truth. And a liberalism was a principle that said we needed to listen to all points of view in order to arrive at the truth. So what is truth in, from the point of view of critical race theory? That is, a, you know, I mean, that's a fabulous question they tend to go one of two answers. One answer is that there is no such thing as truth. So if one reads Ibram uh, Kendi, for instance, uh, the notion of truth of quantifiable order is a white supremacy construct. Um, and we know it's white supremacist because it uses white supremacist tools. And if this all starts to feel a little tautological, then, you're, then, you've, got, then you've got the idea. Uh, the, but, but what's odd about it is that those of us who've been doing this long enough also remember when some uh, of the advocates of multiculturalism um, explained that these things are not simply legacies of the Western European Enlightenment, but that these tools were developed by various cultures in Africa and Asia at various points in history. 
Um, that was uh, very ardently argued about 20 years ago, but seems to have been forgotten uh, in the current incarnation. Well, you know, this argument that there is no such thing as truth tends to destroy the person who's arguing it, because if there's no such thing as truth, then what's the truth in what you say? It's sort of like the Magritte painting of a pipe that says this is not a pipe. I mean, it's, it's sort of nonsense. You know, it's will, it becomes will to power. Um, you know, this, this is why um, people who've spent a lot of time with anti-racist doctrine and critical race theory wind up talking a lot about Orwell because there is something very ministry of lovish about the way these things simply become truth is whatever we insist it is. Well, you know, I find there are a lot of Marxism in this uh, thought as applied in practice, such as in the 1619 project, that uh, there I find that they, when they start getting down to the uh, looking at history and describing events and interpreting them, they're, they're, they use all the categories that, that Marx invented. You know, Marx himself believed that he did have the truth, and he never said there wasn't such a thing as truth. He just said the truth was going to be revealed by the struggle of the proletariat. And so they do express a lot of, of this uh, class conflict. They talk about class conflict a lot. But if, if everything is fundamentally con class conflict, where does race come in? Where do ethnic groups come in? Now, Marx saw them as a distraction, as something that was irrelevant, that we should get rid of, we should ignore that, we should treat all people as of the same background except for their social class. So how do you get race theory and class theory equated here? Um, you know, I, I think essentially they've displaced the one with the other. The argument now is that it is all about race and white, you know, and people who are white and ethnicities, which would have been seen as vastly different 40 or 50 years ago, uh, Greeks and Italians and Poles and Irish now get lumped together under this label. And the idea that there are either ethnic distinctions among those groups or class distinctions have been subsumed by a narrative of, you know, what, what uh, Tom Wolf called black back to blood, um, a, you know, a clash of race and everything is subsumed by that. Well, to sort all of this out, I have to go back to my philosophy course in college. Uh, but um, isn't this just such an abstract debate here? It has nothing to do with really what's going on in education today. Now, why are you suggesting that critical race theory is being taught in schools? Um, I mean, actually, that's part of the question, right? Is, what exactly is critical race theory? Um, frankly, I think what's interesting is what is getting done in schools, what, what lessons are saying, what teachers are doing. And the real story here, I think, is things like race-based affinity groups, where school systems, uh, including Wellesley, Massachusetts, as you know, uh, have claimed that there's a research base for organizing kids by race in order to talk about issues of race. Um, what we're talking about is privilege walks, where elementary school children are taught to be um, ashamed of their privilege based on the number of books on their home, based if their parents are married, um, where we're talking about the, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones assertion at the core of the 1619 Project 
that American history is a history of slaveocracy. So frankly, for me, I'm less interested in, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of something called critical race theory. And what are these things that are happening in schools? And I think these things frequently are bad for children, bad for the nation, bad for their communities, but it's difficult to talk about them if we're getting hustled into this conversation about whether some abstract notion exists and if the media insists uh, that the whole thing is really about um, our, our nation's reluctance somehow to talk about slavery. So you are saying the media are, are in good part at fault for the current confusion on this topic because they are really um, ignoring some of the fundamental questions that we've been uh, talking about. Uh, you say that uh, one of the questions you ask is how often, you're asking this by, by your study of the media, and maybe I should ask you, well, what media are you studying here before I get into these questions? What, sure. what media did you study? Yeah, so what we did, we looked at a year's of coverage, uh, looked at a year's worth of coverage in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal and USA Today, and then also in three of the prominent education news outlets, uh, Education Week, The 74, and Chalkbeat. So you're looking at some of the leading education uh, outlets and you're looking at obviously the major uh, news outlets in the country. So how often were concerns about critical race theories, intellectual foundations, such as its skepticism of rationality and objectivity. How often was this mentioned? That's one of your questions. So what did you find? Almost never. Uh, we identified 91 stories in which the newspapers were explicitly writing about critical race theory. They said they were writing about critical race theory. And if you had read all 91 stories, there were two or three where you would have learned that critical race theory is dubious about the Enlightenment is dubious about constitutional liberty. Well, so isn't that pretty abstract for the media to cover? I mean, why should you expect the media to talk about, you know, 18th century enlightenment issues? Uh, aren't they supposed to talk about subjects other than what's taught in uh, graduate seminars? <laughs> you know, I mean, my, my, my general proposition is if you're writing stories explaining to the nation what critical race theory is, it seems incumbent to say, to talk to somebody who's an advocate of critical race theory and have them explain what it believes in. And yet you could read a year's worth of coverage in all of the nation's major news outlets and never learn uh, that the motivating reasons for critical race theory are that they are deeply skeptical uh, uh, about the foundational elements of you know American liberty and American equality. So your second topic that you explore in your study is how often did the media uh, discuss controversial critical race theory aligned instructional practices? Uh, I think you just mentioned these affinity groups. I assume that's what you mean by that and some other examples. But so what'd you find? How often did they talk about those kinds of practices that uh, may be problematic? Sure. And, you know, your first question is, all right, we're not going to talk about what critical race theory believes, but if there's one thing we know media likes to do, it likes to write about controversial uh, debates. 
Um, and yet, only five of the 91 stories mentioned this push for race-based affinity groups, uh, which is hugely controversial, partly because there's a lot of reason to think it runs afoul of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Um, only there is a aggressive push um, under the auspices of anti-racist education, critical race theory, uh, to ensure that schools not um, engage in colorblind treatment of students. Um, this has been pushed by you know, bestsellers like Robin DiAngelo, who assert that schools have to be actively conscious of students' race. Uh, this has been embraced by the Biden administration's Department of Education. This was mentioned only in about a dozen out of 91 news stories. So it's one thing to say that we're not gonna talk about what critical race theory believes, but it also turns out that we're not gonna write about the controversial practices that critical race theory encourages. So that does seem like it. They, they missed something there. Now, the third question you ask, how often did stories about laws pass to limit instruction in critical race theory? Or, or ban critical race theory, as is often said in these articles, uh, how often do they actually quote the language of the laws in question? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, this, this picked up, obviously, in the spring when state legislatures started to push for uh, what's generally referred to as CRT bans. Um, there were dozens of stories on this. Um, and what's funny is a lot of the stories talked about how important it is to look at the way the language is going to pinch teachers and pinch schools. But about half the stories quoted not one single word from the legislation under consideration or the legislation that had been enacted. This is particularly problematic, for instance, when you talk about the Texas CRT ban, many of these newspaper accounts imply that it was fueled by the fact that Texans don't want schools to talk about slavery. That gets a little more complicated when you actually look at the Texas law, which mandates that all schools teach a unit on slavery. So what it was saying was that you have to teach about slavery in a way that encompasses debate, that brings different points of evidence to bear, um, that you can't teach about slavery as the true north of uh, American history, as the New York Times 1619 Project would have it. But the Texas law says you have to teach about slavery now in a way that you didn't have to teach before. If you're writing about the law and quoting the law, it's harder to mischaracterize the law. But about half of all coverage quoted not a single word out of the laws. Um, most of the quotes uh, that did refer to the laws at all quoted less than a dozen words out of the laws. So again, if you were reading news coverage to learn what these CRT bans said, you, 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 you would come away empty. Well, I think the Texas example is pretty telling, but I also think that, okay, so sometimes legal text included in statutes gets to be pretty dry and the reporter has to recast the language in something that's more accessible to the ordinary reader. So I'm sure they would defend their, uh, their story writing in just these terms. So uh, how, how do you respond to that sort of defense? That's, that's, that's fair. And honestly, if the context were different, if they were at least explaining what CRT advocates believe in, I'd be giving them um, some more leeway here. If they were explaining what the fights were about in terms of controversial practices, I'd give them more leeway here. Um, if they were accurately describing the laws, I'd give them more leeway. What you really have are laws which 
in many cases, did not try to ban anything, but which required that teachers make sure that they are not causing students of any race, ethnicity, gender, national origin uh, to feel embarrassed or ashamed um, because of their race, ethnic. This is all largely language borrowed from the Civil Rights Act. If the news coverage had acknowledged that, um, I'd give them more leeway. The fact that the coverage has characterized the laws in such fundamentally different ways without bothering to quote from the laws is I think where that burden um, becomes problematic. Okay, so then the final question that you explored is what do they actually talk about in these, if they don't talk about any of these topics, what do they talk about? <laughs> you know, if you read the coverage, you would think the entire CRT debate was literally about should schools talk about racism? And should they teach slavery? Every single story we coded over a year in every one of these seven outlets talked about racism. Uh, Two thirds of these stories talked about whether schools should teach slavery. I mean, honestly, you would think that there was a fierce debate about whether to talk about slavery and Jim Crow for in the coverage, except that the survey data on this is really clear that Obviously, most Democrats think schools should teach about slavery, well over, you know, 85%, but also over 80% of Republicans say schools should teach about slavery, say schools should teach about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, say schools should teach about federal government's atrocities against Native Americans in, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So what's so bizarre is that the media's depiction of the central issues of debate actually aren't issues of debate at all. These are the places on which Americans largely agree. So I can remember when I went to school in a public school, admittedly some time ago, some decades ago, that I actually in my high school history course, I had a better than usual high school history. He was a wonderful man. Um, He tended to stick to the facts. He wasn't very good on interpretation. But we did have a section on slavery, the causes of the Civil War. We did have a section on Reconstruction. We had a section on the Southern response to Reconstruction, on Jim Crow laws, and uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. So, I mean, we did cover all of these topics. Did schools stop doing this? (laughs) No. That's... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's what makes it such a red herring argument. The real debate here is how schools should talk about this. And obviously, you know, our friends who are more woke would like schools to be more, um, to, to editorialize on these topics more often than your, than your teacher did. They would like your schools to make sure they're talking more aggressively about white privilege and systemic racism and institutional racism. And that's, that's fine. I mean, these are these are conversations we should have. Um, I might disagree with some of my friends on the left about how much of this there should be, but I have no problem with them trying to make the case that schools should do this. What's so troubling here is that instead of accurately explaining what the debate really is about and what our friends on the left are encouraging and what some of those, some of folks like me are more, are more um, troubled by, is the media has dressed up a serious, substantive, important debate about how to talk about slavery and how to talk about racism, and has tried to recast it as if the question is whether or not 
people want schools to talk about things in 2021 that, to your point, they've been talking about for decade upon decade. Okay, so what's have you? Can you give me one exception? Can you tell me some story out there that got it right? Is do we have one example from hopefully the New York Times that is the great exception to the rule here? That, so we can see what a you know proper news coverage would look like. Um, I I can't think of one from the New York Times from having read these, but I think there are examples. Um, I think David French at the Dispatch has written about, you know, I think, you know, you know, David, he lives in Tennessee. Uh, He happens to actually live in one of the communities where right wingers seem bent on proving that the right wing does have narrow minded bigots. And they have been uh, the school had adopted um, some materials uh, about I believe it was uh, Rosa Parks in elementary grade appropriate, language appropriate, early elementary school books, which were, and because students, to my mind, absolutely should read about these things and should learn about them in grade appropriate ways where they're asking important questions. And parents tried to get these materials um, shut down. And David French was writing about this and reporting about this. And he was explaining what was actually being said and what was actually showing up on social media. He was articulating kind of his concerns about the excesses of critical race theory, but also making the case that obviously we need to work harder at making all Americans of all backgrounds feel heard and respected in the school curriculum. It doesn't seem to me that darn hard. I mean, people are capable of writing this way. Unfortunately, it just not seems to be the way that many of our major news platforms are inclined to tackle the topic. Well, how about your own analysis? I did see an Education Week uh, commentary by you uh, that was at least on the online edition. Uh, so they didn't it didn't cancel you altogether for uh, criticizing them along with all the other uh, for for missing the boat here. Uh, but is that the only example? Are you getting? Is anybody willing to admit that maybe you have a point, or at least giving you a chance to articulate your concerns? Um, no, I mean, I, 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 you know, to Education Week's credit, I mean, Education Week has had me, you know, blogging for them for, what, 12 years, uh, even though um, I think, you know, many Education Week readers may not come at these questions the way I do. And so I think that's, you know, that's a credit to them. Um, you, you know, I mean, you know, Paul, you, you know, certainly from our experience with Education Next, you know exactly as well as I do how fraught some of these topics are. And what I have found is that there are lots of folks in the center and folks on the left who are uncomfortable uh, with some of this kind of racial Marxism, who are uncomfortable with some of these new dogmas, but are hesitant to say so out loud. They're hesitant to say so too vociferously because they're worried about losing access to funders. Uh, They're worried about being written out of advocacy communities Uh, They're worried about um, getting in trouble uh, with universities uh, or with key players. And so, no, I think a lot of the the journalistic platforms um, have either said we are anti-racist, like Chalkbeat, which is, you know, it's I don't know quite how you claim to be reporting neutrally on these things when you have said we're on one side of this debate. 
but Chalkbeat um, apparently is trying to negotiate that. Um, and I find that more of the same uh, measured sensible conversation is either happening outside of the mainstream media, the traditional media and the education outlets. So it's at places like the dispatch or real clear policy where folks have more maneuvering room or education next, obviously, where we play a slightly different game. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but I, think, I think there's a lot more room for sensible, sane conversation on this offline than you see online. So, Rick, how about the funding? You mentioned funding here. Is this really coming from the foundation world? The foundation world has a tremendous influence, not so much with the mainstream media as with the education media. The education media doesn't really have an audience of any significant size, and so they can't have a huge advertising budget that uh, generates a lot of revenue for them. So... Um, they're very dependent on donors. And is this dependency on donors affecting the direction of the commentary and even the news coverage of, of the education press? Yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly it's playing a role in it. Um, you think about the major education funders, all of them are on the pro-critical race theory side of this conversation. It's hard to think of any major education funder who says, hey, um, I'm explicitly interested in funding folks to push back on that narrative, to ask hard questions. Um, I'm hopeful that after the last 10 or 12 months, we'll start to see some donors coming into that space. Uh, but right now, it is a very one-sided uh, set of funding opportunities. You know, I mean, you think about the fact that KIPP schools last year said they were abandoning their longtime slogan of work hard, be nice, um, because it was... Uh, a legacy of white supremacy culture. And you would have liked to think that there were some charter school funders who would have said, wait a minute, what? Uh, you would have liked to think there was some news coverage that said, holy cow, are you serious? Um, but you didn't see that news coverage and you didn't see that pushback in the education community. And I think that is part of this larger dynamic that we see playing out. Well, I think you were exaggerating things except or yesterday I went to church and admittedly it's a fairly liberal congregation and a young intern was uh, the speaker, but I got a sermon on the fact that Thanksgiving was a celebration of the uh, slaughter of indigenous Americans by the pilgrims. And uh, this we should, uh, bear in mind, come the turkey dinner we're about to have. So I was, um, I, I certainly uh, felt badly uh, and, uh, and suffered. And I sort of thought, well, I guess it's not only in our schools that we are being uh, taught something uh, similar to critical race theory. I mean, San Francisco School Board would like to strip Abraham Lincoln's name from uh, from elementary school. I mean, we're at a point where, you know, and, he, and the crazy thing is, look, these are important conversations. You and I have been swimming in these debates for decades. Um, I respect that there's people who come at it differently uh, than I do and that they come at it from a place of goodwill and thoughtful. That's fine. But the media's job should be to elevate 
and report upon these debates so that people actually understand what's at stake. And, you know, and, and it seems to me it's just a crucial, um, it's a crucial failure uh, when the media becomes a participant uh, rather than a source of, you know, honesty and understanding. Well, thank you, uh, Rick, for uh, shedding light on a topic that's uh, very uh, easily pushed under a bushel. So uh, thank you very much for joining me uh, today. Hey, my pleasure, Paul. And, you know, as always, I can only do this stuff because many years ago, you were kind enough to, uh, you know, help me actually learn how to study things. <laughs> so, yeah. as always, um, with great appreciation uh, for all of your counsel and support over so many years. Thank you very much. I have been speaking with Frederick Hess, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He has just released a story identifying bias and selectivity in the coverage of critical race theory. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.